0: Good morning. It's good to be back with you guys. Um, I'm going to give you a little setup here before I start the uh, recording, just because I decided not to uh, preach a special lesson for you guys, but rather just continue in the series that I've been teaching uh, at home. Uh, That series is uh, about the covenants and about Jesus and about. You know, some of the things that we just struggle with as far as getting rid of some of the problems, the barriers, if you will, in reaching people around us. Um, You know, we have have a lot of Scripture that we know, and sometimes we treat it all the same way. And I think that's a mistake sometimes to uh, uh, forget that there's different parts of Scripture, and there's different uh, things to understand about that. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a moment. But in the Old Testament, uh, you know, you have all these laws and all these regulations and if you meet people out in the communities, they're going to say, well, what about that stuff? You know, I, I, you know, you say, here's your Bible, read it, and you'll understand what God wants you to do. Well let me tell you what, if you started in Genesis and you got burned out somewhere in Leviticus, would you know what God wanted you to do? Huh? you know, I think sometimes we need to add a little context. Uh, We need to remember that the Old Testament was the Old Testament, that the Old Testament was for the Jews. It wasn't for the Christians. And yes, I know that Timothy and others uh, obviously learned from the Old Testament about God's plan. But what was it that made the message of Jesus so irresistible to the people of his day? That's, that's what I want to try and stimulate you with. And I wish you could uh, hear the rest of the series. Uh, if you want to tune into the Cato 102 website, you can uh, do that. But uh, the point that I'm making is that we have a message that's very valuable, and we've got to get it out of this building. And we've got to get it out of all of our church buildings. In fact, is there really any such thing as a church building in the New Testament? Or is it just a gathering place? And, and that's the message we need to get out into the people in our communities that come visit us. You know, come, come be with us. We're just normal people. And we've got a great message about a Savior, about hope in Him. So that's kind of where I've been going with these lessons. Uh, let me get started here. And I do borrow some from a book by Andy Stanley called uh, Irresistible. And uh, I've got a few quotes from him today that I'm going to share with you, too. And if you get a chance, you might pick that book up. It's a pretty good book. Uh, it, uh, all the 30-something years that I've been studying this very topic, uh, I was quite refreshed to see that somebody had put all of those random thoughts that I'd been trying to gather for so many years in one place. Um, I'm not that talented, but uh, he is. So bear with me just a second. Good morning to everyone and good morning to those listening in on Cato 102.3. I'm going to be in John chapter 8 if you want to join me there this morning, John chapter 8. We're going to look at the last verse of that and I'm going to move on pretty quickly. You know, Jesus, He made some alarming statements. I mean, really, really, for the Jews, they were blasphemous statements. Uh, they were against everything that they believed in. You know, he he said uh, something greater than the temple is here, as they're standing and looking at the temple, and people are thinking, who's this guy? Even some of his followers were thinking that. And then he made a, a brash statement about the temple and all its majesty. He said, you know, uh, one day there's not going to be a stone left on top of another here. That's blasphemy. That's God's house. The only problem that the people of jesus day for god is yeah that first temple that solomon built which god did not want by the way he didn't need a house he was with his people but that first temple yeah god appeared there that epiphany you know that second eye that glory of god it filled up the temple didn't happen to the second temple didn't happen at third temple and he would think that the people were starting to get the message that God was not interested in living in something that they built him. Uh, and Jesus makes these statements. It's just radical, you know. And then in this case, they decide they're going to stone him for this. Look at John chapter 8. Uh, they're talking about Abraham. And in verse 56, he says, Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad And then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Pretty good question, right? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones uh, to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, something greater than the temples here. There's not going to be a stone left standing. And by the way, that is a true statement. In AD 70, God got rid of the temple. He used the Roman army to do it. And they literally dragged other stone apart. Several thousand pounds, some of those rocks weighed. And they dragged them off into the valley. Some of them are still there today. Uh, and now he's saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that would get you killed, right? And it did, by the way, eventually. So let's go to Luke. Uh, Luke 22. I'm going to move around a little bit here. I hope you'll join me in your Bibles. I think there's some uh, important things to uh, see, and I hope, I hope you get your pencil out and write in that Bible. You know, they, there's an old saying, if you don't mark your Bibles, it won't mark you. You know, if you've got one of those pristine Bibles that looks like it just came off the bookstore shelf. Um, it needs a little oil, little smudges. It needs some writing in it because that means you spend a little time in it. Uh, this is what's happening, kind of a setup for this story. This is the Last Supper. Uh, this is where Jesus is going to make some more of his radical statements. And, and, you know, he had a lot of followers. And they started to kind of drift away, if you notice, uh, you kind of read between the lines. And now he's down to these 12 men. Well, actually, one of those has already bowed out because perhaps Judas thought that this guy is going to get himself killed. I might as well make something off of it. I don't know. But at this point, there's 11 people in this room with Jesus. And he's going to tell them something that is absolutely revolutionary, totally radical, um, totally out of Judaism, I mean, these guys are Jews, and they probably are, I don't know when they painted that if they caught the gasps on their faces when Jesus was making these statements. But just imagine if the paintings you've seen in the Last Supper shows all those guys with their hands over their mouth, because I think that's what happened. Luke 22, verse 14 When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he says, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said to them, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, but in Luke's account there's two cups, right? Uh, I remember one time somebody got the order mixed up and they were nervous and they served the communion uh, cup first. And there was a big discussion. Can we do that? I said, they were just following Luke's account. Don't worry about it. So you can think about that one. And he did the same with the cup after supper, supper, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Hmm. They're celebrating Passover. If it's not the most... It's close to the most celebrated festival of the Jews. It's the most important one of all, because it's about God rescuing them out of Egypt, right? I mean, all through the prophets, that's what God talks about. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. So, I mean, as far as God's point of view was, that was their identity, the people he rescued. And now Jesus is making it about himself. Again, that could be considered blasphemous. And maybe those guys are thinking, hey, Jesus, maybe we better get back to the part about the Passover here. And and, and let's talk about that new covenant thing later on, because this is like a holy meal, and you're talking about something else. Verse 21, but see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table, for the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe that the one... By whom he is betrayed, and they began to ask which other one or another, which one of them was. Okay, so you can see how Judas slips out, and he's left alone with the other eleven. But what was this new covenant they're talking about? Could it possibly be what Jeremiah had prophesied seven hundred years before? I don't know. Let's look at Hebrews. You're thinking, well, why are not we going to go to Hebrews to talk about um, Jeremiah? Well, because the Hebrew writer talks about Jeremiah. And he puts it in context of what these early Christians were now facing and what they now understood about these covenants. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8. You know, Hebrews can be kind of hard to understand especially if you don't know a lot about the Old Testament and you don't know what's going on. But what you have is a bunch of Jewish Christians that kind of still want to hang on to the Old Testament and the customs and the traditions and, and even perhaps the old law. And, and that was a big problem. And, and you can understand why. I mean, they've been with God for generations. And they've been followers of God for generations. And now they've converted to this follower of Jesus and, and they understand that, yeah, that was God's promise, but why get rid of the old? Why, why can't we hang on to it? Um, and by the way, just let me pose this question in your mind. Because you probably heard something about the old covenant, new covenant. You probably have studied that at some point. Why do we make a, such a big deal about keeping the Ten Commandments at the courthouse? Are they still in force? Um, Why do every time we want to condemn some practice that we don't like, we quote the Old Testament? I'll come back to some more of those questions in a minute. I just want to kind of seep in just a little bit. But listen to what this Hebrew writer is saying to these Hebrews. It's very blunt. Verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant. Okay? We got that. We've quoted that a hundred times, right? But did we understand it? Which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. Now, we often... Get defensive here, and we go. Well, now God didn't make a mistake the first time around, so we can't say that God was at fault. It had to be the people. What we always forget to interject in that conversation is that God had a plan for that first covenant, and it had an ending. It had an ending. It was for the Jews. All those laws are for the Jews, they're not for Christians. And how come we now pick and choose? You know, we want the Ten Commandments, but we don't want to do all that blood sacrifice stuff, right? We'd get thrown in jail for that. Um, we don't want to do some of those other things. I mean, we want a little bacon every now and then. You know, like every morning if possible. Uh, so we kind of go, well, yeah, some of it applies, some of it doesn't. I'm not so sure that that's the right way to understand it. Now, I'm okay if you want to put the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount down at the courthouse or on the front of your church building. But if you're not a Jew, then don't put the Ten Commandments up, okay? And I'm not saying that some of the principles in the Ten Commandments are not still there. I mean, Jesus tried to sum it up and people just didn't get it. And he says the whole law is summed up in this. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? Jesus didn't give very many commandments. You ought to go back and try and count them sometimes. There's there's really not that many commandments that Jesus gave. Now, we've come up with a whole bunch of them that we think he should have gave that we enforce. But when you really look at the context, he doesn't. His main commandment was what uh, Paul, right? Is that your name? Yeah. Paul mentioned earlier. He told those disciples, if you look at the version in John 13, that same night he was betrayed, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Why was it a new commandment? Because he was ushering in a new covenant. It was in the old, but now he's ushering in a new covenant. Now, let's look at what Hebrews says about that. <clears throat> he says, for if that first covenant, verse 7, had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. And this is where he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. God finds fault with them when he says, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with a house of Israel, with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Under that old covenant, it looks like that God remembered all their sins, right? Well, there was also forgiveness. I know a lot of people have said there wasn't, they have never read Psalm 51. They've never read about David's confession and talking about God washing him as white as snow. There was forgiveness under the Old Testament, but not like there was under the New. And look at what he says in this last verse of chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. We know what obsolete is, right? you got an old vehicle or an old farm equipment, tractor, whatever, and you go to find parts for it, and they say, well, that's obsolete. In other words, it's not useful anymore. Uh, It had its place in time. It served its purpose, but it's not in effect anymore. Now I want you to keep reading your Old Testament, okay? But stop trying to live by it. And stop trying to get other people to live by it. It's obsolete. It's out of date. The Jesus movement is in. And when he told Peter, "Upon this rock I will build my assembly," by the word, why by the way, the word church was a made up word. And unfortunately, it still stuck with us, or we'd get a better idea of what this was all about, this congregating together. In fact, there's a guy named Tyndale that he tried to translate that word assembly in the 1500s. And you know what they did to him? Yeah, you ought to read the story. It's pretty gruesome. They killed him, they mutilated his body, and then they burned it. You know, all over Basically, one word. Because what he was going to do is take away the Old Testament out of the New Testament by doing that. Yeah, you know, church had become an institution. You still had priests, you still had, you know, orders of worship, you still had all of these specific things that you had to do. And by taking out that word church, he took away the institution. And when Jesus said those words to Peter, he wasn't talking about an institution. He was talking about a movement. He was talking about these people that were going to live under this new covenant. And this new covenant was going to be about bringing people to Jesus. This new covenant was to be about God forgiving their sins and remembering their sins no more. Uh, it was not going to be a blend of the old and the new. In fact, that's the whole reason the book of Hebrews is written. And if you want to get right down to it, it's about the reason for about half of Paul's writings. It's for him to get through that transition period. Yeah, it's soon going to pass away. It's soon going to disappear. Or at least that's what the Hebrew writer thought. But we keep resurrecting it, don't we? Yeah, and then the reformers came along. You know, uh, here's here's Martin Luther. He's protesting against uh, you know the official church, so to speak. He's protesting against all of their edicts and all the things that you got to do. And, you know, you got things like if you do something bad, you know, you got to do penance. Uh, you got to you got to earn your salvation, basically. And everybody's going to come up short, so you've got to have a system of fixing that, so we'll call it penance. And then we'll get some guys, some of our cronies, to go out and sell penance, you know, and they can make some money off this deal. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of nice Christian folks, you know. Yeah, they, they wanted to kill Martin Luther too. But this covenant was something big. You know, if you, if you go back and you look at the covenant that God made with... <coughs> abraham when he talked about i'm gonna make you a great nation Uh, through you all the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed that you know that's a covenant i'm going to be your god you're going to be my follower the covenant made with israel same thing with over and over again but that covenant um that was a fulfillment this new covenant The Old Covenant had a finale. It was over with. It was done. When when they saw that empty tomb, that was the mark of Jesus doing exactly what he said. I'm going to be the new covenant in my blood. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? He's going to die for them. He's going to die for this new covenant. And, And here we are today. Still celebrating the New Covenant. Um, It's over with, isn't it? Well, you would think so. But the early church, they struggled with this. They they had a habit of selectively blending and picking and choosing. It was kind of like going to, you know, a big buffet somewhere, and you want a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that's how they they kind of blended this together. And let's, let's face it. The early church did not have a biblical text of their own. They had the Jewish scriptures. Uh, It was almost impossible for them not to bring in some of those aspects. Yeah, so they had to have temples, right? They had to have priests. They had to have sacrifices. (coughs) And if you look closely at what Paul and others wrote about that, In this new covenant, you got it too. The only difference is you're the temple. Yeah, the people are. Um, And the sacrificed? proceed your bodies as living sacrifice, which is wholly acceptable to God. And, you know, we sometimes still pray, you know, God, let this... uh, Worship service, be acceptable to you. God wants to raise his hand up and go, hey, I told you what was acceptable to me. I want you. I got fed up with those people in the Old Testament when all they did was say my name and not follow me. In fact, he said to them through the prophets, I hate your sacrifices. You know, your lips speak my name, but your hearts are... Far from me. He tells them in Jeremiah. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And this time I'm going to write it on your hearts. Not on tablets of stone. Yeah. We have some of those elements symbolically. So what do we do? Well. These other people. They said. Well. We got to have a temple. Uh, We got to have this like it is. In fact. Let me give you an example of how the early church, I'm talking about later than the New Testament times, how they began to develop this, how they kept going back to the old. Uh, This is documented in history, okay? You know, they were still out there among pagan people, right? Now, pagan people were involved in idol worship which involved a couple of things. One, saying that there was a God besides the God, and then there was a lot of sexual immorality involved in the idol worship as well. God continually warned them about that in the Old Testament. The Jews just seemed, I mean, from the day they crossed the Red Sea till, you know, Jesus' time, they struggled with that. They still kept getting pulled in, didn't they? Now, Now, here's the problem early church decided that all of these pagans around them, well, they got to go. And there's this guy, his name was Julius Firmicus Maternus. I hope nobody has that name here. It's not real popular in Southeastern Oklahoma either. Uh, But around 346, He wrote a letter to the sons of Constantine. Now, Constantine was dead, and his sons had kind of taken over the kingdom. Constantine, you may have heard, was the first Christian emperor. I'm going to tell you, he was anything but a Christian, okay, if you read about the things he did. But here's what what he told them to do. He says that idol worship and animal sacrifice had been banned by the empire, but it wasn't being enforced. And he reminded them that as God's servants... It was their responsibility to eradicate paganism from the empire. That included the destruction uh, and confiscation of pagan temples, as well as the destruction of the pagans themselves if they refused to convert. Uh, lay your head across that communion table. Let me put a sword to it and see if you convert. Is that fear or is that conviction? Yeah. And you know what they did? They went out and started killing them by the thousands. And you know what passage that he used for these Christian Romans to use? Deuteronomy 13. You can look it up later. But it's where God told them and Moses told them, you put to death anybody in your family that's involved in idol worship. Now, let me... Let me just back up just a little bit. Let's go back to Paul's time. How many idol worshipers did Paul put to death or advocate putting to death did you remember? I don't remember any either. What about Jesus? No, I don't think so. And you know why? Because they lived under the new covenant, not the old covenant. And the new covenant reached out to these people. The new covenant gave them a place. Let me read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick. 1 Corinthians 6. So, you know, he's talking about fornication, he's talking about them being the temple of God, he's talking about them violating, you know, some of the things that God has. And in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, Adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, like a lot of passages in Scripture, that's where we stop reading, isn't it? And this is what Paul says. And this is what some of you used to be. How did they get from that? to being saints in Corinth. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What do you think Paul's message was out on the streets of Corinth? You think he had some sandwich boards that says you're all going to hell? Hmm? I mean, that's some feel-good stuff, right? To go out and be God's mouthpiece and say, all you people are rotten and you're going to hell. I really don't think that's what Paul's message was. I think his message was, there's someone that is God that's died for you. In order that your sins can be forgiven. I think that's message why, is why those people were in that Corinthian church. You know, I had a situation one time. Um, you know, there's nothing worse as a preacher than uh, having an unexpected elders meeting or business meeting, Right? because you just get that little tingly feeling between your shoulder blades that something bad's gonna happen. And you guys, you know I'm not criticizing elders. There was a man that came to church. He dressed a little different. He wore a wig that looked like George Washington. He was a little off center. Somebody in the church decided that since he looked so different, he must be a homosexual. And if he was a homosexual, all of us were going to get AIDS and die. Guess who they thought ought to take care of it? (laughs) Guess what I said? Let me read you this passage from 1 Corinthians 6. Now first of all, I don't think the man was a homosexual. But I'm going to tell you something that may just rattle your cage this morning. I hope it does. I wish that where I preach at, that every homosexual in the county attended my congregation. I wish that every adulterer attended my congregation. I wish every thief, every drug user, every outcast of society did. And I try every day to drag those people in. One reason. I don't live under the old covenant. I live under the new. And I've been washed in the blood of Christ. And I've been sanctified by the Spirit of God. And if I can... They can. This can't be an exclusive society. We're not Jews, folks. We're Christ followers. We're an assembly of Christians that have gathered here this morning to fellowship and to build each other up. And what unites us, we would say, is the blood of Christ, when really what unites us is sin. And the forgiveness of it. And that's the message we've got to get across to people. I don't know how we do it. You know, we can put up signs that say, you're welcome. But they're not going to know it unless we tell them. We can, we can put up all sorts of banners and you know, we can do things. But unless people come in contact with us, they may never see Jesus. We may be the only Jesus they ever meet. And as hard as it is, it's what we're called to do. Because we live under the new covenant. We live under a covenant of grace and hope and forgiveness. We live under a covenant where God calls us not for sacrifices of animals, but of ourselves living sacrifices there's a lot more to come there's a lot more details than that but i think we ought to ask those questions sometimes why do we still have a little old testament creeping in how come we can't just get rid of it yeah think about that i appreciate your time today I don't know, I don't remember how you guys did the invitation, but I'm going to do it my way, okay? Uh, uh, I just like to think of this as a time when, when we can share with our family. If we've got these things we're struggling with, we can look around, we can ask for help. Um, I don't believe this is the only time someone can put on Christ in baptism either. But certainly it's a time we can celebrate that. Uh, So if there's anybody here this morning that, you know, you're hurting or you're suffering or maybe there's things in your life that are just beating you up, I hope you'll share with us today. Thank you.